The real sports narrative today is the business of sports. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. Sports distribution rights. Personal file, 69, offense. He was giving them the business. Massive contracts. You can put it on the board, yes! And sports network regionalism run amok. There's always been like a mother and father. Like this is a father bucket, this is a mother bucket, and since the last game, they had a baby bucket. And the seemingly land of confusion of regional sports networks. Next on... The following program is brought to you in living color. As early as 1923, David Sarnoff recognized the possibility of developing a television system. This is the dimension of imagination. Oh, yeah! Now I remember! It's Inside the Box, the TV history podcast. All right, welcome back to Inside the Box TV history podcast, or welcome as the first time you've listened to us. Uh, today we've got a fun show for you, and I don't always like to date the uh, show, but it is summertime as we record this. And I think for our listeners, um, even if you're not the largest sports fan in the world, I think in little ways you might start thinking or noticing sports because I always sort of think of summer and baseball. So um, that's what really inspired me to do the episode today. So today we really are going to go on a bit of an exploration and really sort of let our our freak uh, flags fly as academics to sort of think through some issues regarding sports and uh, television broadcasting, particularly around networks. So before we get any further, let me uh, welcome my co-hosts, as always, Andrew, Jay Salvati. How are you doing, sir? Hey, Jonathan. I am doing great. And uh, like some of our viewers, uh, or listeners, I should say, uh, not the biggest sports fan, or at least haven't been in a while, um, but I've done some reading to prep for this episode, uh, and I'm really excited for it. Uh, excited to you know partake in the discussion that mostly you guys have, but uh, there's definitely some stuff about this topic that interests me. Well, then I will uh, definitely introduce the uh, true boy of summer, uh, Steve Voorhees, baseball fanatic. Uh, Steve, uh, how are you doing? Welcome. Good, Jonathan. Nice to uh, be here this afternoon with you. Don't you I'm feel it? I'm looking forward to talking about this. Don't you feel it, though? It's summertime. Don't it's, you think like baseball and hot dogs and the field? So, and- so my disclosure is I worked in sports television for a number of years in my professional days before becoming an academic. And people would think that's the greatest job in the world. After two or three years, I was not going to baseball games in my free time. I was not going to football games in my free time. That was work. And so mm, yeah. if I did get a week off in the summer and friends said, hey, let's, let's go to the ball game tonight, I would emphatically say no. Wow. That's quite all right. Yeah. You jaded, jaded man. Um, no, but I, mean, I I don't know. I'm feeling it. It's summertime. It is ridiculously hot today. But like, and I'm not even a big, huge baseball fan, but I do like going to the ballpark. I do like sort of sitting in the cheap seats if they're still there available. Uh, you know, hot dogs, peanuts, beer, the whole, the whole bit and, and watching a good game. You, so you, you would pay $8 for a beer? Oh, easily. Yeah, easily. Why what? not? Because you, Andrew? I don't know. It's all part of the experience, right? I mean, well, you they, save they've kind of you... got a captive audience. I'm cheap. If you if you sit in the cheap seats or you happen to be going as part of like a, a company thing, like company bought some tickets for you or the other employees, then you're saving there. So why not buy? Well, the, the company should be buying me the beer then too. Oh boy, okay. <laughs> See, I go to concerts a lot too, and the beers are comparably expensive, and yeah. I'm well willing to pay them. 
Well, speaking of monopolies, <laughs> yeah, speaking of monopolies, this will take so. us right into our content distribution. So, so if if uh, if you're interested, I I've touched a little bit on similar topics with a podcast uh, that was done last year uh, called Fourth and Long, and I talked about some issues of of football. But really, what it's about and what today is about is this idea of this marriage between sport and broadcasting. This idea that sports are important, and certainly the live experience, as I just said, I love going to a live experience to be face-to-face with the game, but we also know that we uh, like to be able to sit in the comfort of our living room with our super-huge HD uh, screen TV and enjoy sports. And I always make the argument that, for the most part, that is sports today. Sports is a broadcast uh, uh, entertainment. Um, yes, you can argue that, of course, playing sports is a different experience, and of course, physically being there is a different experience. And the owners certainly rely upon uh, the gate receipts and the beer sold and the hot dogs for profit. But for most of us, the experience of sports is a mediated one. So, what are we talking about today? Then, well, two two elements there. One is I always have an axe to grind with uh, college sports and their desire to build out their own networks. And Steve has a real interest as well with the idea of sort of the regionalization of uh, certain broadcast networks in regards to uh, to sports. So we're going to kind of hopefully intersect between the two there. So Steve, what what's your entry point uh, for you for this topic of sort of regionalization of sports? Um, do you see it as a as a positive thing? Is it a trend that you'd like to see continue, or is there a better way to do it? What 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 sort of fascinates you about this? Well, the regionalization I think is the most important part of sports television because if you take a local hockey team, basketball, baseball, football, the people, the citizens, the fans who live in that designated city, area, or state of the team is going to want to watch that local team more so than the national team. Now, that's discounting the Super Bowl, the World Series, national championship type events, uh, and, and even college to an extent because you may not live in the area of where you went to school. But for a local sports team, the regionalization of broadcasting becomes everything to that team because that's where the highly uh, concentrated fan base is going to be uh, rather than some of the other fans that might have moved around the country, right? So n- national game of the week, it's important. Uh, the football football has really the biggest handle on that. But for sporting events that play more than once a week, hockey, basketball, and, and baseball especially, the local fan base is the fan base you want to reach. Therefore, regionalization right. becomes the most valuable. Right. right? So, so that's where I want to I want to kind of stop us this at this point and and go to Andrew a little bit, which is. So is regionalization sort of the best marketing ever uh, that ever could have occurred with sports? Or is it just sort of an inherentness, I don't know, historically with sort of events uh, within sort of small communities, et cetera? Meaning, is regionalization just the way it had to be and so we, we built that fandom from there? Or is it something that's sort of put upon us like, well, you're from you're from Wisconsin, Green Bay, Wisconsin, so you got to be for the Packers. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like, is this historically? Do we? Is it always that sort of the local tribe or the local whatever sort of built that that sort of in intense uh, appreciation for itself, or or do you think this is more of like a 20th century advertising marketing kind of thing? Well, I mean, we're we talking about when, you, when you're talking about regionalization. Are you talking about like? You know, minor league baseball teams, or I, I guess be. I'm kind of confused. It, it, it there. could be any sporting event where the local <clears throat> team 
uh, identifies with that city or with that town. Right. So, I mean, we broadcast this podcast from central New Jersey, and I would say right now we're split between you have Giant fans, Jet fans, and Eagle fans. And it, it almost becomes political where a, a person is going to be, uh, you know, very uh, passionate about the team they follow. They're going to pledge allegiance to that team, whether it be through a family member that got them right, introduced right. or maybe the area in which they identify most with friends. Uh, so it's that sort of allegiance. I think politics and, and sports, you know, right. closely aligned in that. And regard. I would I would say for your college experience, Andrew, I'm guessing it was sort of like, uh, and I don't know all the teams, but it's probably something in San Diego, maybe a little bit of L.A. teams, Arizona teams, and maybe I can't think of who else. Maybe New Mexico. Uh, sort of as a, a Southwest conference yeah, or a I mean, Southwest regional sort of broadcast package. So, you know, just that idea of sort of region, region traditionally Northwest, Northeast, Central, Mountain, that kind of thing. I mean, do you think uh, it's just sort of a, a, a an inherent uh, due to lack of transportation technology and other te- technologies that these small communities sort of formed and this sort of became a appreciation for itself? Or do you feel like that's something that was sort of put upon? Right. So I went to school uh, undergraduate at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Uh, so go Wildcats. Um, <laughs> but I mean, my understanding is, and guys, please correct me if I'm wrong here, that uh, historically uh, cities who were outside of the two, uh, you know, seaboards, uh, East Coast and West Coast, or outside the major metropolitan areas, places in the Midwest and in the West uh, that didn't really have um, huge national teams uh, kind of gravitated more towards their local teams, especially their college teams like Nebraska, Oklahoma, sure. uh, e- Texas I mean, e- to some extent. Even high school to a level, right? right? Especially exactly, Texas. Texas, yeah. That's a good point. Um, so that was kind of my understanding. Now, going to a large you know, land-grant university where there's quite a diversity uh, in the student body uh, in terms of where people came from, Unlike our experience with Rutgers, which is predominantly our students are from New Jersey. Maybe you get some from New York, Pennsylvania, and Delaware uh, in there. But I was from New Jersey going to school in Tucson, Arizona. There were tons of kids from California, uh, tons of kids from Chicago, Texas, all over the place. So they brought with them those uh, regional alliances from, you know, what they knew from home, from Mm -hmm. high school, from rooting for the Bears or the Cubs Mm -hmm. or, you know, for the Jets or Giants or what have you. So it was kind of a mixed bag, my experience anyway. That might be, you know, different, you know, depending on where you go. I think that's where sports with colleges separate because the local team is the area in which you live every day. Colleges are very... Uh, transient in that way, where right. you have people from all over the country for four years in one area or however many but, years you're at school, right? right? But, but then we even have even non-alumni alumni, locals in that town, whatever, Tucson, mm-hmm. uh, Piscataway, um, uh, Madison, Wisconsin. They even if they never attended the uh, the institution, they have a love, you know, a love for oh, the Badgers or the Knights or the, you know, whatever, right. Wildcats. So I think yeah. that's also that. And yeah, you get tons it. of people in Tucson who did not go to the university, who that's, you know, that's their local team. Right. And maybe they root for the Cardinals or something in the meantime. But even people like myself who came from New Jersey or, you know, folks who came from, you know, Los Angeles, when they came to the university, most of them, I expect, became Wildcats fans right. rather than, you know, remaining a USC fan or UCLA fan or, or something Devil like that. Or something. Right, right. Nobody's a son. Don't, don't even say that on this program with me. Um, well, well, let's see if we can fold TV into this because yeah. I think the, the intersection between this concept of fan bases and regionalization and television is very important. 
there are two, in my mind, there are two categories for sports broadcasts on television. There's the national broadcast where you have ESPN on the cable side, NBC, ABC, CBS, Dumont in the 50s, where they would have a game of the week. Right. Uh, and it would be two local teams or whatever sport may have you, you know, teams playing on a national level so that everyone across the country with access to that network could watch those two teams play. So you would get to see if you, you know, lived in New York, you would get to see a Cardinals game or see an, a Los Angeles Rams game of the 70s, right? Uh, and so the idea is that before this age of the internet and um, you know, nationalization of sports, that once a week you could get to see a, a good game picked by the networks. On the local side, which I really want to focus on today, you had local TV stations, generally UHF channels, and this is in the mid-20th century, that would be able to broadcast and pay the team rights to broadcast their games. So having worked in Philadelphia, I have uh, more history in that area. So I, just to give you an example, we'll take the Philadelphia Phillies Baseball Club. So from 1971 to 1982, the Phillies aired on WPHL-TV, which was a UHF Channel 17 local independent station. The reason why independent stations were great for baseball broadcasts, because they happen so frequently, is that you don't have to compete with the primetime lineup. So they're not preempting an NBC lineup. They're not preempting a CBS primetime, which is a lot of money in advertising. So they would look for a strong, over-the-air broadcast channel that would then have the reach out into middle of Pennsylvania, eastern New Jersey, and so forth, Delaware, if you will. From 83 to 92, WTAF, which is now WTXF, another UHF channel, they won the rights to Phillies games. So you had stations bidding for the team, and the team would pick, as long as uh, you know they were happy with the broadcast signal, they would pick the highest bidder and give them the rights to the game. And this usually came along with revenue sharing from advertising. So not only did the station have to pay for the rights to the team to air the games, but the team would also take a percentage of revenue sharing. Well... By the mid-1990s, the Phillies were spread across three different channels. About 70 to 100 games were on WPHL-TV. 40 games were on PRISM, which was a uh, HBO-type channel. It was a commercial-free, uh, high-tier, premium cable channel just in the Philadelphia area. And they had Flyers, Sixers, and Phillies. And then there was Sports Channel, which was a, a company that had regional sp uh, sports channels across the nation in different cable packages. And the Phillies were on 25 games there. So the season was fragmented across these three networks based on bidding. Well, at the same time, in 1996, Comcast, the cable distributor, uh, had bought Spectacor, which was an event organizer in Philadelphia that happened to own the Flyers and the Sixers, the NHL and NBA teams of, the, of Philadelphia. Well, what Comcast decided to do now that they owned these teams was to put them onto their own network instead of splitting them across Prism and PHL 17 and Sports Channel. They formed Comcast Sportsnet in 1997. And the Phillies, they ended up purchasing the rights there because Comcast has a lot more money than these other local stations and uh, cable networks had. So Comcast Sportsnet becomes a regional cable sports network that had the rights to the three of the four major teams in Philadelphia with the NHL, NBA, and Major League Baseball. And this is where you start to see regionalization. So Philadelphia really became one of the first hubs for this. Fox Sportsnet would also join in, although Fox Sports is not a cable distributor. And I, I hope today in our conversation I have examples that you're going to see that being a cable distributor and owning a regional sports network and having stakes in teams becomes a very 
complex and not always the best situation for the fan base right. uh, in this distribution of media rights through television. Right. So, okay. Thank you for bearing with me from that. Yeah, no, long no. Long and winding history. <clears throat> no, that's good. Philadelphia has always been such a linchpin of a uh, uh, town for the sports business. It just is. And they know it and they exploit it and they, they want to be exploited to a certain extent because uh, they love their sports. Yeah. But Well, if I can just interrupt yeah, one stat just to play off that. In 2014... Uh, the Phillies got a 25% stake in Comcast Sportsnet, and they signed a $2.5 billion TV broadcast right contract for 25 years. Yeah. So they're locked up through 2029. Um, I'm sorry, 2039. Right. Yeah. That's, to me, incredible. How do you even know what the media landscape's going to be in 2039? Yeah. Well, okay. So so I apologize. I'm going to ramble a little bit here because I have a lot of, lot of points, and we can follow up on a few so first, of course, is the, the question of can sports as we understand it today really survive without this sort of uh, broadcast distri- or distribution uh, system that is either regional or, or localized around their own particular brand? That, that's the first question. The second question is, is always my perspective, which is are we just so addicted or trained to be addicted to sports, the sports fan, that we, uh, we have these guys doing these bids and contracts that have no relationship to reality beyond the fact that we seem to endlessly pop down our dollars for hats, jerseys, tickets, ephemera, blah, blah, anything sports really. We seem to have an insatiable appetite for it because um, otherwise why would you spend billions on rights uh, for, for games and such? I mean, it just it just seems silly. What we have then is, is also, you know, I tend to be a bit of a, cr- a critical scholar on this, but, you know, if, if say Fox Sports 1 and Comcast have carved up all their sort of regional networks, then you sort of say, well, well how regional can it really be if you're basically just giving everybody a template uh, so to speak, you know, New England network, the uh, Mid-Atlantic network, the uh, Southern uh, State network, the you know Mountain Region network. Well, I, I will tell you, when I worked in Pittsburgh, and this is in the early 2000s, Fox Sports Net Pittsburgh no longer exists. It's now Root Sports. Fox Sports Net Pittsburgh would do their 10 o'clock Pittsburgh sports show mm-hmm. in the Pittsburgh studios. But St. Louis, who was an hour back, as soon as the 11 o'clock hour began, they would quickly change the sign on the desk to say Fox Sports St. Louis. <laughs> and they did the regional St. Louis show from Pittsburgh. Right. So, you know, right. it, it's kind of this idea of like radio stations you hear doing that now where right. the host is even in the city where they're, you know, pretending yeah. to give traffic reports. It's kind of the same so, thing. So that's that. That's where the, the sort of critical part of me looks at and kind of cries bullshit because – you know, not that there's really anything too serious of consequences with extreme fandom, although I, I would I could argue there is. But, you know, for the most part, no one's out killing each other or whatever. But there does seem to be a lot of time wasted on sort of animosity beyond sort of the good natured. We get together on a Sunday to sort of root for our team and we don't like the other guy, blah, blah, blah. It seems like people spend a lot of their time worrying about their team and hating the other team, etc. So if if the regionalization via Fox or Comcast or ESPN helps fuel some of this identity. Uh, but as you said, it's really just this changing of a sign and sort of BSness of it. Uh, then that that's, all seems sort of silly to me. Then, of course, the, the, the other question is, is, is with regionalization, um, is it even necessary these days because we have content available any which way, any, any which time? And this kind of goes back to Steve's idea of national teams. So we already know, both from the reading and our own experience, that even if you sign a college conference or a professional conference to a big package, you're really going to put the most popular branded teams on more than the little guys. So 
nationally. U- national. USC, um, uh, uh, Notre Dame. But, but these are free over the air. It's the USC game on ABC, Notre Dame on NBC, right? Yeah, you but have how to is buy it free? the micro packages to then get the smaller teams. Right, but how? I mean, with the cable prices for basic network television, how free is it? You know what I mean? Well, I, oh, I, well, that's the thing because who owns all these, um, you know, regional networks? It's Fox, News Corp, ton right. of money. So yes. you know, some independent local regional company is not going to survive. And in fact, there's been a history of right. Comcast buying them out or yes. outbidding them and crunch, crushing right. them because once they lose that one NBA contract. Yes. What else do they have? Hunting and fishing shows all day long, right? Exactly. It's, you have nothing else to air for 24 hours. So to me, it's the regional sports network, nobody watches it for probably 21 of the 24 hours of the day. It's just that one live game yes. that you get on a daily but, basis with pre and post game. But you're well, not, that's what. But that I would you know. make. That's the only counter argument I would make, which is going back to my argument that sports has to be understood as a television product. And that television product is as much about talking about the action of the sports uh, sporting event uh, as it is showing the events of the uh, the actions of the sporting event. So I know what you're saying. Like, it's really only the three hour broadcast that's important. But I'd almost argue, no, it's not. It is the fact that some washed up quarterback or some washed up pitcher is now sitting in a in a set on a set in a chair going, well, I don't know what Johnny Pitcher's going to do in three hours. <laughs> and then after the game going, well, let me tell you what I thought Johnny did. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's that fills up the oh, airtime. Yeah. And, and that seems to be as as much about it. So just my, right, my – So 20 of 24 yeah, hours. 20, right? Yeah, 20 of Half hour pre and post. Right? But, uh, yeah, not counting reruns. But so my <laughs> point is is that if if – we can watch anything we want almost any time through well, our tablets, et cetera. Hold on. I got to stop you there, though. No, no, hold on. What? All right. Go ahead. Tablets. Then what? And we know they're going to put on the most popular teams anyway. I just, again, why do we pump so much money and effort into the regionalization when it doesn't seem like we even it, it, it's anything built? Blackouts. Oh, don't get me on the right now. What? I know. what? Go, you can't no, go. watch I, your content I, I, anywhere, anytime. Sports is the one thing that you cannot watch anywhere, anytime. They have it so locked down that you have to pay a premium just to be able to watch your team. Not, not you know, yes. I, you'll get blacked out on the iPad. You'll get blacked out on other obstacles. And, I know. But and, you know, Andrew has experience with this with, you know, NBC's Olympic coverage, right? How how do they right. determine how all of this is distributed because people are watching on so many platforms? Is what Jonathan is saying true, that, that you think sports is everywhere available nowadays so the regionalization is not as important? Or I think I, it's just very locked down. I the the blackouts are real the blackouts are real but i just feel like they're so old school that i cannot imagine that a current 16 year old unless they are paying them a lot of money to continue to black out the games would it ever go that's a great rule let's keep doing it oh no i just can't imagine it's a terrible rule no i'm saying i i before it was always artificially kept alive but i with with a generation who's expecting everything at their fingertips I just can't imagine them uh, supporting that idea. I'll give you two examples. The NFL does it right. If your local team is on Monday Night Football, which is on cable ESPN, a local station in your area will air the ESPN feed so that you are never blacked out from your local team. Unfortunately, there's come times when your local football team doesn't sell out enough tickets and then the NFL blacks you out from seeing it because they want to get local people to the games first and TV second. That's a much more archaic type of rule. Yes. But in baseball, it's different. If, if ESPN, if your local team is on the ESPN Sunday night game, you're blacked out if you don't get ESPN. There's no other way for you to watch that game because national trumps regionalization. 
Right. Yeah. 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 So I'm I'm not as familiar with MLB, so I'll take your your word for it. Um. Okay. Fair enough. I'll, I'll concede the point with MLB. I just think it's 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 really locked down, and that's the one major issue that okay. we'll talk about. And and there's a reason it's locked down. And I'll give some examples. But back to Andrew, um, you know, with your experience with the Olympics. How, how does NBC regulate between different platforms? Are you familiar with what they decide goes on the traditional television in real-time, prime-time, versus what you'll watch on, an, on a mobile device versus what they'll time delay? I don't do anything with uh, mobile or online in my department. And remember, I'm, I'm a grunt, so I only have, like, the ant's perspective of what goes on. But I know that we have two feeds for the Olympics. We have the one that something like 95% of paying subscribers, uh, paying head ends get. And then like, I, it might even be less than 5% of uh, providers who don't subscribe to the Olympics and they get what's called our vanilla feed. And oh. instead of, you know, swimming on USA, they'll get like reruns of Monk or something. Um, <laughs> but it's 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 not that many people because all of the head ends, from my understanding, you know, subscribe. All the cable providers subscribe right. to it. Your conversations reminding me of uh, the history of how broadcasting was thought to be organized, or the best way to organize broadcasting in the United States, which goes back to the radio days in the 1920s. Whether it would be um, you know, broadcasting as a medium that is open for everyone who wants to broadcast, or it's best organized by large institutions who can better finance and fund and provide better technical standards and quality content. Which one of these paradigms was in the public interest? And as we all kind of know, the national network paradigm of, um, you know, quality content, of professionally produced content won out over the local uh, amateur or uh, you know just sure. local local broadcasters. So there was a time at which you know local programming is maybe all that you could get. Um, and for a while there, uh, local broadcasters were you know when they were experimenting with affiliation, they were you know kind of taking some of the network shows and supplementing with their own local programming content. And listeners at that time voiced an appreciation for network work shows because they're professionally produced. They were uh, oftentimes featuring national performers, well-known, you know, household names of people, vaudevillians, comedic acts, what have you. Uh, and I'm just kind of getting the sense that the same thing probably played out with sports as yeah. well, that the national network uh, providers uh, who are probably more interested in, you know, big selling, you know, acts or big selling games, as you guys right. are saying, kind of won out over providing the local audience with, uh, you know, local fare, local. I, I would say that's 50-50 because I think the national networks for sports, they have gimmicks. You'll see a lot more of this super slow-mo or the hockey puck with a laser beam inside <laughs> so you can see it shooting. That, that local regionalization just can't do. However... The one variable, Andrew, in your example for sports that I don't think applies to other network programming are the broadcasters. So if you mm. are a regional viewer, fan of your local station, you're going to get your home team's broadcaster, and they're pretty much going to be on your side because they're rooting for your team, whereas the national is much more uh, a word that was just described earlier, vanilla. Yeah. Right? Mm. It's just much more um, objective point of view. They're not rooting for either team. They're just going to call the game. Mm. And so you lose that, that homer uh, call, right. if you will. That ball hit high and deep. Stretch. Stretch. Get on back there. They look up. You can put it on the board. Yes. Yes. 
I think that's an excellent point, but I think that's also just another mechanism or, or technology of the sort of how to how to do regional, you know, like the template. So you get the guy who is paid to be incredibly enthusiastic about the team and has some personality on the mic, you know, and all this stuff, which I think is wonderful. But um, but uh, yeah, I, I I I still would prefer some sort of weirdly organic version of that versus uh, you know something manufactured. But so so can you give me a Vince Scully impersonation? I cannot. <laughs> uh, it would be a terrible one today. Um, so what I want to go back to is this idea of scarcity. So you're talking about game of the week. Um, and what we look at the history of college football and NCAA negotiating television contracts for college football and then eventually breaking out to the uh, college football association, the big power players, was that when NCAA controlled it is there was a scarcity and there was also sort of a, a, a uniqueness to Monday night football as well, right? Because there just wasn't much telev- uh, football on television. And then once... NCAA lost control of being a monopoly uh, to distribute the games and allowed the other conferences or other uh, solo institutions to negotiate their own rights, you suddenly had more football on television. So this is the other thing, too, is sort of the, the definition of sports itself. Sports before was sort of a novelty, I guess, originally on radio and then eventually on television. Oh, I'm going to sit and watch the baseball game this week or the football game, regional or maybe one national game. And now the nature of sports, as we were talking about before, it's 365 days a year, 24-7, because, again, I, sorry, listeners, I'm beating beating the bush here, but dead horse, mix your metaphors, whatever. <laughs> but... Sports is about data. Sports is about narrative. Sports is as much about talking about sports as it is watching someone throw, catch, run, pitch, whatever, a ball. And so when that happens... And it's internalized. And it's internalized. And so, you know, when you get to that point, then it's sort of like, well, there is no scarcity anymore. And so... uh, why do we even need quote unquote regional in a sense? Because again, regional to me is limiting. Regional is a unique identity, um, but but scarcity, you know, isn't there, and it seems to be increasingly bled. The regional and the national seem to bleed together a little more than than they used to be. My argument back to that, and I understand your point, would be on a given night there might be ten to twelve hockey games on. Maybe you know, let's take April. In April, you have the NFL draft, you have hockey is still in season, basketball is in season, baseball has started. You're, you're close to 50 to 60 games being played a night in just those four major sports, not even talking those, about golf tournaments or anything else. Are you including the developmental league games? Sure. What about training camp coverage? <laughs> Whatever fans will eat up, they'll okay. broadcast. <laughs> what what Without, about players' individual tweets? <laughs> Okay. I'm sure there's a network for that, too. <laughs> My question to you, then, is if it's not for regionalization, where are all these games being broadcast? True. That That, that is a that is a, an excellent bridge to, to uh, as a counterpoint. Yeah. So if you don't if you don't break down the content or the market into these sub markets, then how do you multiply? I think that's an excellent point. And then the I guess the inverse of that perhaps will be if the NFL finally goes back to Europe. If somebody goes to China, if somebody, you know, then it, it's not only doubling up the content within the national right. borders, but then expanding it eventually to be a, a global uh, sort of like we're right. watching now with, was it Copa, um, you know, with the soccer uh, yeah. soccer world. Well, to just to go back to your example of having so much, a plethora of sports, there are still monopolies that exist 
within the regionalization because of the unique factor of being able to air a single team's games on the night when there might be 40 professional sporting events. You're saying the value of the regional identity. Yes. And, and so here's an example. In 2000, this is um, Comcast Sportsnet Houston. Are you familiar with Comcast Sportsnet Oh, yeah. Net I watch Houston? them all the time. <laughs> and you're Andrew seriously Sondre. pondering that. Do, do you know Comcast Houston? No. I don't think we have <laughs> Well, that let one. me tell you the story of Comcast well, that's, that's Houston. So this is going back Unless to 20... Unless it's gone, and that's what you're going to tell us. Yeah, it's gone. Okay. 2013, okay, they, they declared bankruptcy. Here's what happened to the 2013 Houston Astros Baseball Club. Now, Comcast is the cable provider in Houston, one of several, when you mix in satellite, Verizon, and then some other local um, cable distributors. Comcast is one that serves the Houston, Texan, Houston Texas area, and, and outside, um, outside areas as well. Well, Comcast Sportsnet Houston paid the Houston Astros $80 million for the rights to air their games that season. So the network, Comcast Sportsnet, is the regional sports. Comcast is the cable distributor that owns them. Well, the other half owner of that are the Astros. They had a 46% stake in Comcast Sportsnet. So they're kind of in the way this works, and many teams will do this, they take a a large stake of the regional sports network in order to hide the revenue because baseball right. has revenue sharing and you don't want to show too much revenue on mm. the books. So what they'll do is they will reap all the benefits from the network kind of offline. Hmm. So the team paid or, or the team is paid by Comcast Sportsnet Houston, but they also own the stake in it. So they're just kind yeah, of yeah, just the money's just moving around. To the other, yeah. Well, what happened was is that Comcast decided that $3 and three cents were a good subscription fee to everyone that got uh, Comcast Sportsnet Houston. So if you subscribe to a cable company and they had this in basic cable, your $3.03 would be tacked onto your cable bill. Well, all the other uh, multi-video program distributors, satellite, cable, all said, no, $3.03 is too high. And Comcast said, well, then we're going to hold the Houston Astros from you. We're blacking them out. Too bad mm. you don't get it. Mm. And Comcast had figured that all these people in the Houston area would revolt and want to see them. Well, there's one small problem. The team was 51 and 111 that year. They were <laughs> awful. Right? Yeah. You lose 111 games in baseball. It's terrible. So nobody really cared. So Comcast went alone that season, airing the Astros just in Comcast territory, and they had less than a million subscribers. So now what happens to advertising? Advertising plummets. And in late that season, in August, uh, September, the Astros had a series with the Cleveland Indians and the, um, uh, I guess the Los Angeles Angels, may have been Anaheim Angels at the time. They didn't even register Nielsen ratings. Wow. They were, they were less than one in the Nielsen ratings. So you have a Major League Baseball team in 2011 when everyone gets content. Right. And they can't even register a ratings point. So this is this is fascinating. You know, things are off the top of my head. One, does it ultimately come down to whether you're a winner or not? And the second the question of that would be is, is there some, uh, 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 what's the word, you know, uh, excited fan base that will stick through thick and thin with a completely losing, you know, losing team year after year? Um, the, the, uh, other? The answer is no to that last question, apparently, <laughs> in the Houston area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. For $3.03 a, a month. Right. And no. then it goes back to the, the point we made before, which is why are we bothering to pay these huge licensing fees and things when apparently no one's really watching or cares? Or what? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you tell me, oh, I can deliver you the valuable audience. Maybe you really can't. Maybe because no one's there. Well, the funny thing was I found a Forbes article uh, before the season began 
that lauded this $80 million deal, saying with all the cable subs in the Houston area, they're going to be clearing 40% profits, and the team's going to get 40% profit on this $80 million deal. Well, when they had no subscribers and then didn't get the ratings and no ad revenue, from July into September, the Astros got no broadcast rights. Comcast Houston was so poor, they couldn't even pay the team back the rights, Jeez. and they declared bankruptcy at the end of the season. So it's right. a fascinating so, kind of case so, study, but you know, Sportsnet LA is doing this too with the Dodgers. They're going right. through this now. But part of me thinks of I, I like almost connected back to the housing bubble. Like, is this just a huge con game? Like that you said, the twenty-five year contract for those yeah. broadcasts, right? Billions of dollars. I mean, we know right now Disney Disney loves the uh, the Lucasfilm acquisition and Pixar and everything else. But they are trying to say ESPN is not a problem for them. But we know it's a problem for them because they've paid so much in licensing fees to the different leagues to show the games right. while also, quote unquote, reporting on them, all that stuff that is killing their profit line. They, they, they want to have a Force Awakens type of uh, profit. Um, and, and so so that that's so why kills like, that's the overbidding. Right. Because if you have a local independent TV station like we had in the 20th century or a small regional sports network that's just independently owned, they're not a Comcast they're not a Fox, uh, they're being outbid by so much. But then you look at CSN Houston, they outbidded so much, and then they just went bankrupt because they couldn't pay it. And Time Warner Cable is doing the same thing for the Dodgers. They have an $8.35 billion deal for Dodger games for 25 years. And at $4.90 a subscriber, all the other area uh, distributors, DirecTV, Dish Network, Verizon, and Cox Cable, all told TWC, Time Warner Cable, forget it. We don't want Dodger games. Right. So now TWC is losing $100 million a year on this Dodger deal because they can't right. get enough subscribers. And if they lower the subscriber fee, they're not making enough up to distribute it, right? right? So they're, they're losing so is no it, matter what. So, you know, two sides of this coin for me is one is this just all illusion. You know, is this all just sort of deals built on built on a weak foundation you know, or, or empty promises or something. But then the other side of me is that why does this keep getting thrown so much money is because it is still, for the most part, represents the sort of dominant culture, at least traditionally in this country, which is a bunch of older dudes who love sports. You know, and, and, and the weird thing is, is that they don't want the old guys because they have the discretionary income. Yeah, they they might buy a financial package from T. Rowe Price, but they are not going to necessarily go blow a, a ton of money on a on a on a new, you know, a spider testarossa or whatever they, you know, some fancy sports car. So so in one way, it's like this is all illusion. This is all puffery for the sake of puffery. And then the other is, no, they're still targeting sort of the quote-unquote people who have been sort of uh, uh, have some say <laughs> and, and they seem to like sports or they're conditioned to like sports and, and sort of to, pep to perpetuate this. Um, the other thing that I wanted to, to mention then with this and kind of connect it to as a shameless plug as well to our, our, our recent McCarthy episode, if you guys haven't listened to it, please do so, is McCarthy made this controversial statement, which I, I didn't support McCarthy, but I supported the statement, which was he thought because he was on TV, he basically was on equal stature, if not bigger than the White House or the president. So, you know, bring it back to our own neck of the woods, which is higher education. We know colleges pay a ton of money for their uh, big league, uh, big time sports uh, like football and basketball to be on television, regional packages, their own cable network package, et cetera, et cetera. So is the fact that they are on TV, does that in itself basically justify them or make them bigger, truly big as the way they're treated by the administration, 
bigger than the uh, the the quote unquote original mission of the college, which was higher education. Do you know what I mean? Like, like sure. I sit here as an instructor and go like. Athletics are good, and it's good to have competition, and it teaches skills, and it's good teamwork, and it's good exercise, and it, it, it's all that wonderfulness. But, of course, I want higher education to go before uh, whether you can you can uh, run the post and, and catch catch a ball. But, you know, for the 12-year-old kid right now watching whatever it is, Big Ten Network or Big East Network or whatever, and sees Rutgers or, or Notre Dame or whatever, Penn State – you know, like that's more real to them. That's more justified or legitimized than me in a classroom saying, you know, here's a lesson or here's here's an insight. Um, I don't know. What, I mean, I do, you, you know what I mean? Like the legitimizing function of television for sort of sports and higher education. Well, let me ask you two questions. If I said University of Miami, Florida, it's the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, their high-quality 19th-century French literature <laughs> studies program. I knew he was going to do that to me. <laughs> is, it, is it The Rock? Didn't The Rock go there? Yes. Yeah. 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 No. I was thinking football. All right. If I well, said yeah, Duke, the, if the I said Duke yeah. University, do you mean Dwayne jo- Dwayne actor, The Rock actor, Johnson, actor, actor yeah. Dwayne Johnson, who was what the quarterback? Well, thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. This was, really worked was, out well. He was a line. He was a line. He was linebacker. a linebacker who like blew out his knee. If, yep. if I said Duke University, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Law school. Oh, come on. No, 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 no. No, you're right. Miami, Miami. Basically, what I think of with Miami, I think Nike, and I think big league football, and Duke. I think that coach and basketball. Coach K, right? Right. I, and it's just because and, and it's, Nike. it's the daily yeah. conversation anywhere you look. It's none of the other sports programs gets gets as much air. If I said UConn, you might think the women's basketball program. So this is so. What I'm saying is, I don't believe in any of that. I I, I don't like it, but I think it it makes it it actually makes sense for most people. Which is if 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 through my and again I always bring it back to sort of the the time where you're socialized to think of this so being a little kid you know if if I learn that the the smartphone is important because it's always in mom and dad's hands and television is important because mom and dad tend to watch a lot of it most of the time and when they look at either the tablet or the smartphone or television and they see uh, I'm trying to pick different schools to pick on, you know, uh, uh, University of Illinois or uh, or UConn or Georgia or or uh, Tulane on television all the time. And what are they on television for? Not because of their great chemistry programs, not because of uh, their engineering, but because they have a great basketball program or a football program. And we seem to put so much emphasis on these devices and on the the medium itself that. I guess while I'm still disappointed, it's not shocking to me that when I have a few of my undergraduates kind of come to me and treat the logo, the brand, the team, the paraphernalia as the most important part next to their, you know, uh, off-campus parties or whatever, you know, as the most important part of that experience or or the quote-unquote soul of the college as opposed to um, the library, which of course is a dirty word now. It's supposed to be info center or something like that, um, or learning annex. I didn't get that memo. We'll, we'll save that for another. I'll, oh, I'll, t- I'll tell. Yeah, we'll tell that in a different conversation. So my my point is is to kind of take it back to to college regional sports networks and the relationship between sports and television. Is I think we do love it. We do put so much emphasis on it. We we say it's important. We say it's significant. We share family time around it. We share friendships around it, significant relationships, et cetera. And so when you tie that to uh, higher education and the sort of focus from top down to regionalize or reinforce the regional identity, then it does, as Andrew was saying before, it entrenches it um, to the point where I don't think you can define the sport without it. 
And I think it becomes very problematic when you, uh, especially an administrator who's being a bit uh, 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 two-sided, says, you know, our, our most important thing here is higher education. Our most important thing here is faculty support, our most, you know, et cetera, et cetera, when really we're subsidizing. And I won't name any institutions, but I've heard that they, certain institutions subsidize like the foot, major football team to the tune of something like $39 million or something. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's it, I think television... And this goes back to other conversations Steve and I have had is, is television still as powerful in a multi, yes. multi-screen uh, medium f- uh, world, uh, the power of television to, to sort of uh, legitimize. Yep. And some of that money, though, the millions of dollars, though, you have to look at boosters. You have to look at where that money is coming from, advertisers, the TV network paying the college rights to air the games. You're saying everyone needs to get their cut. Uh, no, no, I'm saying that that money is not just <laughs> sacrificing academics. Sometimes it is, but it, it, there's a lot of other sources. Just to be, I think, I think, I think most institutions, uh, you know, have that extra thirty, especially in these times, have that extra thirty-nine million to throw around. So I'm fine if they throw it to the football team because it's only because I get, I get, everyone has to get paid. No, I'm being facetious, but. But I mean, thir- you know, it would be one thing if it's like, well, we got to kick an extra twenty-seven grand this, you know, this uh, this year to kind of, you know, support the team or buy new uniforms or or pay the contract TV contract or, or well, equipment. The contract, or I think the TV I mean, pays the vice versa. Yeah, right? sorry, vice versa. But you know, thirty-nine million is is a huge amount of money. The only institutions where that is not a huge amount of money is like an Ivy League, you know, institutions that literally have in the bill their endowment in the billions of dollars. And they don't focus on sports, though. Well, Not you know, much, they, right? they don't. But I, I for another episode or a different podcast series, we can talk about sort of the touristization of college campuses. Uh, we certainly see that around here at a particular uh, big uh, Ivy League uh, school. I mean, everything I got from your conversation, though, Jonathan, is that absolutely nothing. I got it. No, it's, <laughs> it's a sports is a bargaining chip. Right. Yes. So it's a bargaining chip for not only the regional sports network or the college sports network, but a bargaining chip for the um, program distributor, such as a Comcast, especially when they own other cable stations or um, where they have cable subscribers at stake. So not only do they own the content, but they own the distribution of the content and then how you can hold that ransom from other cable providers, you can hold it ransom from the fans, that that's going to drive the cost up. And then you see this massive overbidding, and then through the overbidding, you have to then decide, well, how much are subscribers really willing to pay or the other cable providers willing to pay for the uh, subscribers? It just gets, it's very hard to follow the money and to sort of understand what is the true value of television sports today. And and I think it's very, very messy. Everything that we outlined, we may have confused uh, our listeners, but at the same time, uh, this is all, uh, it's all there to be worked out, but it's very hard to get to the bottom of it because the colleges have the money, the networks have the money, the sports generate the money. Well, I I think you've summed it up brilliantly. I don't think you confused anybody. I would just add a, 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 a deliberately controversial sort of, you know, analogy, which is I kind of hope uh, somebody gets foreclosed on uh, in this situation, and no one likes that idea. Nobody likes that a program goes away or a college can no longer put the basketball team up front as opposed to something else. But at some point, some way, I think there's going to be some colleges who realize or students who are tired of paying the huge fees for these colleges, which go to build the, the luxury dorms and the rock walls and to support the professional television football team. 
you know, I think they're going to realize that there's no reason to do that anymore. The the the, the customer's not there. Um, the money's not justified, and we should really uh, refocus that that other places. And that's not to say I wish uh, television goes anywhere. Uh, no, of course not. But um, but the current business model, as you've outlined, uh, I just don't think it can sustain sustain itself, nor should it. Yeah, and I'm, much, I'm not as familiar with the college uh, athletics as I am with the professional sports. But these 25-year contracts, who knows what's going to happen with you know 2.5 billion over 25 years or 8.35 right. billion over 25 years? It's it, to me, it's it's where's the content going? Who's going to own it? Who's going to be able to access it? Will it be blacked out? I mean, to this day. I subscribe to Major League Baseball's uh, digital streaming platform. So I get every single game around Major League Baseball on a given night. However, I do not get my local team through streaming. So my local team, I'm in this area, I have Phillies are my local team. The Phillies are blacked out on the streaming. So I will never get a Phillies game streaming unless I leave my area and go somewhere outside the Philadelphia area in order right. to get it because they want me watching the Comcast Sportsnet through my cable package. Yes. Well, I have a. I do not have Comcast. I have a co- competition uh, competitor to Comcast. The subscriber rates are way too high. I said, oh, you know what? I'm not even going to pay it because they moved it to this high tier Comcast Sportsnet. Right. I'm not going to pay for it. Now I don't get any Phillies baseball. So I have the baseball package, but I can't get my local team, but I get every other team right. around the country. That is very frustrating because it's almost as if you have to pay double just to get your local team, but that's yes. the value of the local team. Right. Does it, that make any sense? The, no, I, it makes perfect sense, and it, it reminds me of the original way I wanted to frame this, which because Steve and I obviously just differ on our, our sort of perspective on sports on this point, which is I see it all as an out-of-control addiction. I like sports. I like football. I like watching sports. As I said at the top of the, the program, I like going to a baseball game live. But – I don't think it's the healthiest thing in the world to wrap your life around a sport so, so strongly, so intensely. I am lecturing you. (laughs) No, you're one of the sane ones. That it becomes this idea of like, well, we we can just start blacking things out and forcing them to go to the other uh, other Comcast uh, channel, or we're not going to do this, but they'll pay higher, or will they? They're going to watch no matter what, you know, da da da. And the only way that happens is if you feel, if your regional fandom is so through the roof that you feel you need a supply, right? And, and this is trying to be funny here, but you know the the first taste is free, and then it you know then it costs you, right? Because you're you're jonesing for it. You feel like you need it, and so. I like sports. I think America should still uh, watch sports. I just don't think it necessarily needs to be a seven day thinking about, you know, what's Tom Brady doing in the bathroom right now? You know, and, and what's Joe Namath doing down in Florida? And 24 and, hour network right. now, right? Exactly. Network. So so that's the part where I think that's where their power originates is once you uh, basically agree with them that you are addicted to this, that you need this. Then the prices uh, are allowed to go out of control because uh, you you are willing willing well, to, the demand, to pay for supply it. and demand. I right. agree with that. Blackout, I think, just comes from decades and decades. It's right. not as if they're adding blackout now to punish the fans. It's it's this leftover law that seems outdated, but you know they still want you to watch on the cable. They still and, want you to watch. And it's not an issue of scarcity. It's not an issue of scarcity. Like there's, there's like if you're a sports fan, you'll find a. If you like volleyball, you'll find volleyball somewhere. If you like basketball, you'll find some form of basketball somewhere. Right? But it's this idea. No, it's got to be my team and this thing. It's got to be the latest, greatest thing. 
Andrew, I know we uh, couldn't get you to <laughs> shut up about this topic this week. Do you have any? Uh, yeah, sorry, it's been a blabbermouth con- this episode. Any concluding points or add-ons before we uh, wrap it up for this episode uh, on sports and television? Concluding, no, um, no. All right. <laughs> I, I, I will say though that um, if there's one thing I would change, it would be that uh, it's a little to me unfair now, and I don't know if unfair is the right word. But in the 20th century, local sports, national sports, they were free, over the air. You just need a TV and an antenna, and you got your games. Yes. Now the cost and the price have gone so high. Have sports uh, and television outpriced the fans and maybe even outpriced the distribution methods uh, from having the content available? Because I would argue that while there's plenty of content, it's not as available as it used to be. Yeah, I would agree with that, and I, I would I would end it by saying uh, – uh, Quote a family member of Shana's, who uh, a great old aunt of hers, who had season tickets to the Giants, and they always ask her, "Oh, what do you think of the Giants?" New season? York or San Fran? New York. Okay. Uh, you know, what do you think about the team and what's going on? Whatever. Do you still go to the games? Blah blah. And she just simply said, eh, I-, "I love them, but it's a rich man's game now. It's a rich man's game, and and you know, seat licenses and the packages oh, yeah. and all that." So I agree. It's it's um. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it, the imbalances there for, for the sports and the fan, and then if your idea of government and government airwaves and broadcast and all that, for sure. Okay, folks, I hope you are in the mood for some sports this summer, because I think we just got you in the mood with our long diatribe on <laughs> broadcast rights and sports. But uh, no, seriously, I, I think we'll revisit this, because it is a perennial, uh, for sure, as far as content on television, and we could even go farther back and, and do certain subtopics. Um, so for uh, everyone uh, who stuck with us through the whole episode, we do thank you. Um, again, just some final points. Please be sure to check out our interview that we did a few episodes back with uh, new, f- former FCC Chair Newton Minow. That's a very uh, excellent interview. Uh, we also have another interview coming up, which I'm not going to quite tease till uh, we're a little closer, but I think you'll enjoy that as well. And we have a couple other interesting ideas coming up over the summer if you're going to listen to us uh, around the time that we record. If not, catch us or catch up with us uh, in the fall. Again, reach out to us on Twitter, uh, Facebook, of course, and also at the homepage, the headquarters, www.tvhistorypod.com. So, uh, as uh, Andrew, Steve, and I uh, begin to loosen up to go uh, get on the, uh, the diamond uh, and hit a few out of the park, uh, I'm Jonathan Bollinger. We'll uh, catch you next time. Bye-bye. Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. And who do you think is the richest person in Venezuela? The daughter of Hugo Chavez. Hello. Anyway, 0-2.